King Solomon was the son of King David, you probably remember, and of course it's from that line of kings that Jesus, King Jesus came, Solomon was one of the Old Testament authors, are we doing okay on sound, or is that just me up here, okay, uh, Jesus came from, Solomon of course the author of some of the books in the Old Testament, one of his sayings out of Ecclesiastes that I use semi-regularly is from chapter 7 verse 8 when he said the end of a matter is better than its beginning. The end of a thing is better than the beginning of a thing. I think of that every time I come to the end of a series and that's the case this morning. We're going to talk about the end of a thing in a couple different ways this morning. One is this series, the Son of Man, Jesus in the Gospel of Luke and keen in on that phrase and that theme, the Son of Man. It's where we've been I've been mostly since October 26th of last year. And we started, uh, we saw verses 1 through 5 in chapter 1. Luke gave an introduction and talked about the way he'd investigated and that we had a reliable account in Luke's gospel. And we talked about the fact that when Jesus used the term Son of Man, it was theologically laden. That if you were a Jew in his day, hearing him use that phrase, that would mean something to you. It was a claim. By Jesus, He's the one that Daniel 7.13 referred to who would receive and then reign over an eternal kingdom. So the Son of Man. Then we worked through going up to the Christmas season. We looked at the Annunciation and the birth accounts of John the Baptist and then Jesus. And then when we looked at the use of the term Son of Man specifically a couple weeks ago, wasn't it interesting that uh, almost half of the 25 occurrences in Luke's Gospel that say Son of Man, they had to do with His betrayal or His rejection. So that's where we've been since October 26th. So we're ending the matter this morning, ending this short eight-week series on Jesus in Luke's Gospel through that lens of the phrase, the Son of Man. The second way we're ending the matter this morning too just has to do with the topic that the Son of Man refers to today, it's kind of a summing up. It's the end of a matter, if you will. The second topic in Luke's Gospel to which Son of Man is used most frequently has to do with the second coming. And the second coming is this uh, conclusion, not of all of God's works on the earth, but it's this very key and important conclusion to rebellion on the earth and to God keeping His promises and answering the prayers of the saints for millennia that His kingdom would come, His will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven, and also going to all those prophetic themes and texts in the Old Testament and the New, when God had said that Christ would come, he would put down rebellion and he would institute a millennial kingdom, a thousand year reign on earth, heaven's reign literally on earth. So that's the end of a matter. We'll see, we'll qualify this towards the end of our time this morning. On one hand, it's the end of a matter, end of certainly life as we know it, but on the other, it's a beginning as well. A seven of the 25 occurrences of Son of Man in Luke's Gospel located in four different passages, refer to the second coming. So God's going to keep promises and He's going to answer prayers as well. And the way we're going to go through this this morning, this is a text-heavy lesson. 
so you'll, you'll need to keep your eyes open and pay attention. You can close your eyes at the end, but I'll tell you when that comes. So until then, if I see your eyes closed, I'll throw something at you. I, I don't know. But we'll read more this morning. We'll simply read more this morning out of the text than would be typical. Let me say this too as a caveat before we get started. The theme of the second coming is really deep and it's really wide. And there's a whole bunch of stuff we're simply not getting to this morning because of time, time constraints. So huge thing, we're just scratching the surface, we're just touching on a couple of the elements. The other thing is this, I am not speaking at all this morning to how the rapture of the church relates to the second coming. I've done that before, you can go online, I think it's September of 2012, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 8, talks about how does the rapture and the second coming, how do they relate? We're just sticking with the second coming passages. And we're starting with the ones in Luke, and we'll see what he said, what Jesus has said in those four different passages, seven different phrases. And then we'll extrapolate a little bit from there. And then at the end, I'm going to do something I normally don't do. I'm just going to read. It's going to take about 10 minutes. And what we'll do is we'll read through a number of passages, one passage after another. My hope is this, guys. If you talk about the rapture of the church or the second coming or heaven, our hearts should be drawn out to Christ. At the end of the day, if we're reading and it's demons and it's beasts and it's heads and it's kings and the number of the beasts and all that thing that we come away with, we've missed the point, right? So I'm not going to have a lengthy list of applications like I did last week. The application is this. Whatever our take on the prophetic elements in the Scripture are, however we see all that being consummated, when we think of these topics, and as we read the Bible along these themes, our heart should be drawn to Christ. The fruit of that should be that we say, as the John the Apostle does at the end of the Bible, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Our future is not on this earth, not on this earth as it is. It's in a new heaven, it's a new earth. So when we're looking at these passages, whatever else occurs, whatever our questions are, whatever unanswered questions we have, all that's okay. If our hearts aren't being drawn to Christ, we're missing the point. Okay, so that's where we land on this. So, if, I hope you have a study sheet because there's a lot of references here this morning. So we're going to start in Luke 12. And in Luke 12, Jesus has been talking to the disciples and He's been saying things like, hey, don't worry about what you put on or, or money. And He said, guys, because this is the deal, your Father is pleased to give you His kingdom. And then Jesus talks about His kingdom. Verses 35 through 40, Jesus says this, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him once he comes and knocks. Verse 38, if he comes in the second watch or the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. Verse 40, you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. It's interesting, depending on your take on the rapture might be different than mine, or your understanding of the second coming might be different than mine, that's okay. In either event, when we consider Christ calling the church to Himself in what's called the rapture out of 1 Thessalonians 4, or these passages that relate specifically to the second coming, 
both of them are meant to engender a watchfulness on the, on the part of Christ's followers. So here Jesus says, related to the second coming, Jesus' followers are supposed to have a watchfulness, an alertness, waiting for His return. And His analogy back in the day when there were slaves and servants in a way we don't have today, but the master of the house has left, he's gone to a wedding feast. And it's going to run late into the night. So they don't know when he's going to come back. The door or the gate to his home will be locked, and so they've got to let him in. And he doesn't mean to be kept out in the street outside his home waiting while he knocks. They're supposed to be ready. So Jesus' point is here, you don't know when I'm returning. And even though the prophetic scriptures, especially in the Gospels, talk about events and the scenes that will precede the second coming, at the end of the day, no one, Jesus says, will know the day or the hour. So he says, related to my return to the earth, you should be like the servant. You don't know when I'm coming. You want to be ready. That's the appropriate thing. And so you stay spiritually awake and alert. It's a call to be expectant, aware, and alert. The next instance is in Luke 17. And the Pharisees had asked Jesus in this text, they said, hey, uh, when's the kingdom come and what does that look like? And to their question, Jesus gives two responses. The first he gives to them is this. The kingdom of heaven is not coming with signs to be observed. In fact, the kingdom of heaven is among you now. I understand him to be saying this, I'm the king and I'm here. The kingdom is here because I'm here. The kingdom is in your midst. The kingdom is among you now because the king is present, which they rejected. They didn't see it. They didn't recognize him as king, so they didn't see the kingdom. But then separately, he talks to his disciples and he gives a different response to them. Chapter 17, starting at verse 22 The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here, don't go out or follow them, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. He goes on to say, before that occurs, I'm going to suffer and be rejected. And then he begins to describe what the days will be like before that lightning flash of his second coming. And he said it'll be like in Noah's day. And it will be like in Lot's day. And it's interesting that when he uses this as the comparison, when we think of Noah, we think of the flood. Or if you think of Genesis 6, the text there says these were incredibly violent, murderous days before the flood. Or if we think of Sodom, we think of sexual immorality. But Jesus picks these two times and places and He says it'll be like those times and places. But then He says it's because they were buying and selling. They were marrying and they were giving in marriage. In other words, they were just going about life as if God did not exist. So on one hand, Jesus says, before I come... On one hand, people are going to be living their lives as if I don't exist and I don't matter and God doesn't matter in their life. But on the other, right, he's picked the flood and fire from heaven as the examples 
associated with his return so that not only on one hand will be people living in ignorance of God, willfully ignoring him, but on the other, when he comes, it's trouble. It's too late. When the floodwaters start, your opportunity to get in the flood into the ark, it's over. When the fire starts raining on Sodom, your time to get out is done. So on one hand, life as usual, sort of. On the other, a time that's going to end in great judgment. Jesus says that his return will be like the lightning across the heavens. And this is tied to a warning. He said, um, my followers will be in a state where they're longing to see me. They've got this great desire to see me face to face for my presence to be with them on the earth. Because of that desire, they are going to have a temptation to fall for false Christs and false claims. And so Jesus here is saying, I'm making this easy. When I return, it's like a lightning bolt flashing, crashing across the skies. He's essentially saying this. If there's any question that I've returned, I haven't. If there's any doubt in your mind that the second coming has occurred, it hasn't. The second coming will be so obvious to all on the earth, there will be no question left. So essentially, Jesus says, if there's a question, if I return, that's your answer. I haven't. It'll be clear. It will be painfully obvious to all. There will be no mistaking this. He also says, and we're going outside of Luke's Gospel now, Matthew 24 is the first, but he also says, though, to his followers, you're going to want to see the day. It's going to lead you to be tempted to accept false Christ, so don't. You can't miss my return. But he says others will. Others will be taken in. They'll be mistaken. Matthew 24, see that no one misleads you, Jesus' followers. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. Guys, no one in this room is too smart to be misled. We are not too smart to be misled. That won't be their problem either. He says to them, don't you be misled. Others will be misled. 2 Thessalonians 2 Verses 3 through 10, and Second uh, Thessalonians chapters 1 and 2 are heavy. They're pregnant with the prophetic scriptures. It's a text most Christians don't tie to the second coming, but chapters 1 and 2 are filled with both the second coming and what days are like preceding the second coming. So to that, Paul writes this, related to the day of the Lord and the second coming, he says, the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now, we would call this guy elsewhere the Antichrist or the beast in Revelation 13. The man of lawlessness is revealed. He's the son of destruction. He opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. The coming of the lawless one is, a, is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. See, Paul says here at the end, before the second coming, the world is going to accept not only plural false Christ, they are going to accept singularly the person here called the man of lawlessness or the man of sin. Again, we'll see this in Revelation 13 in just a second. But the days preceding the second coming are going to be filled at one level, with what we would consider the miraculous or at least the miraculous in appearance. 
If you remember in the Exodus account, when Moses goes to Pharaoh, he performs miracles before Pharaoh and his magicians. And initially, Pharaoh's magicians perform what appear to be miracles as well. In this day, when the man of lawlessness is embraced by the world, there will be, at least in appearance, great signs and wonders by which he convinces people he's the real deal. He's the world's Savior, and they will buy in. They will accept him as their Savior. Revelation 13, verses 3 through 6, speaking of this last world empire, it's called the beast, and then the man who's ultimately ruling that empire is also called a beast. One of its heads, one of the rulers of this last empire, seemed to have a mortal wound. This guy appears to die. But its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Looked like he had a resurrection. By the way, you remember when you read through Revelation, or or in the Scriptures generally, uh, Satan as clever as he is, he has nothing original to give. So he's usually counterfeiting something and he's counterfeiting what God does. So here is a person who appears to die and return from the dead, which is what Jesus did. This is a false Christ with false authenticating miracles. The whole earth earth marveled as they followed the beast. They worshipped the dragon. The dragon is Satan. For he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? Who can kill a guy who returns from the dead? That's the thought. The world is going to accept this guy. If you've read C.S. Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia, how many in here have? Most? Okay, good. If you haven't, it's worth, worth reading. They're great series. But in that series, the book The Last Battle, there's an ape. He's ugly and he's old and he's wrinkled and he's called Shift. He's very clever. And Shift has a friend, which really means just someone he abuses or uses for his own purposes. And Shift and Puzzle find a lion skin. And Shift gets the clever idea, because he knows about someone called Aslan, the glorious lion who's promised to return to Narnia, He puts this lion's skin on the donkey and he says the donkey is Aslan. And he hides him in a hut and Shift tells the Narnians that Aslan has returned. And he's right here in this hut. And then at night, in the shifting light of the fire, this stiff-legged donkey comes out in a lion's skin And the Narnians can see him at a little bit of a distance. And he doesn't speak because what would come out of his mouth would not sound like a lion. So Shift, of course, speaks for him. And even though the Narnians have good hearts and they're waiting for Aslan, they know about Aslan, they're still taken in, at least temporarily. And that's what's going on here. Now, of course, once Aslan shows up, or once the people later in the story see Aslan again, there's no mistaking Aslan for the donkey with the lion skin. And this is what Jesus is telling us. If there's any question that it's me, it's not. You won't be able to stake anyone else for me at my coming, but the world will. This is where we're going. The world will. 
The days of Noah and Lot there in the passage in verses 27 and 28. You know, as the world winds down, we talked about this last week on Pro-Life Sunday. If the world, and we, we did representatively through the Jews and the Romans, the Gentiles, we rejected the Prince of Life. We talked about that last week. If we've done that, what lie aren't we willing and able to embrace? And to what degree will our morality not fall? Our ethics, our, our esteem of life or what that looks like or what I should look like and live like. So Paul speaks to this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7. through seven. So if I live in a Christ-rejecting world and God lets sin have its corrupting influence over time, we can expect that before the second coming of Jesus to the earth to put down rebellion, it's going to be a very corrupt scene indeed. And that's what Paul says here. He said, understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal or beast-like, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's Paul's description, God's description through Paul of humanity generally before the second coming. That's, that's humanity corrupted by following our own way, by rejecting Christ. So it's into this setting. On one hand, it's life as usual, especially if you're wealthy. There's a phrase in Revelation about don't harm the oil or the wine. For some people, they'll be able, even in these terrible times, it'll sort of be life as usual. But on the other, it's going to be a time that's characterized by immorality and brutality and humanity basically reduced to a beast-like, brutish status. You know, I said last week when we were talking about so pro-life Sundays about death, and, and are we going down in the hole now? Are you guys, is the Paul settling on us as we talk about what humanity is like and what the earth is like before the second coming? It's rather depressing, isn't it? This is our humanity apart from God's intervention. Luke 18 is the next. Luke 18, Jesus told his disciples to pray. And he told them this parable because he said, you should pray and never give up. And then his application of that lesson is to this future time just preceding the second coming. So you remember the story, there's an unrighteous judge. He doesn't care about God or people. And there's a widow and she needs the judge to make a decision in her favor and he won't. But she keeps after him. And so eventually he says, I'm giving up. She's wearing me down. I'll give her what she wants. And to that, Jesus says, God's not like that unrighteous judge. When you pray, when his elect prays, he says in verse 7 and 8, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? This anticipates, no, he won't. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So there's a contrast here Jesus is making. So before the second coming, he says, the elect are going to be praying for deliverance. Lord, we are suffering big time. Would you come and deliver us? 
And Jesus says, keep praying that because it won't be long and I will. In other words, you will find me faithful. God is faithful and when his elect cry out for deliverance and judgment, God is going to answer, he says, speedily, and I'm coming. So God's faithful. He'll answer prayer. He's going to deliver his elect. Great. The contrast, though, is this. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And the assumed answer here is no. He won't. God is faithful. He'll answer those prayers. He's not saying there's none on the earth that are faithful and looking for his return, living for him. There are, but they're the rare exception. They're not the norm. When the faithful Redeemer King returns to the earth, it's not to a faithful, king-loving world. It's to a king-rejecting world. And the elect are the exception. They're not the rule. God's faithful, Jesus says. Men aren't. And that's the world He's returning to. And last in these four passages is Luke 21. If you read through this passage, it's very, very similar to Matthew 24. So Jesus is talking about uh, referencing from the temple. It's going to be destroyed. And, and He talks about wars and earthquakes, famines, pestilence, signs in the heavens, persecution of the faithful, that's the context for talking about His coming here. Verse 25, He says, There will be signs in sun, moon, stars, on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity. The world will be so troubled, the problems will seem insurmountable. It will appear there's no way out. And that's, of course, one reason, one key reason why the world will be ready to accept the false Christ. There's going to be trouble. And people are going to look for pain management and a guy's going to promise pain management it looks like there's no way out he says because of the roaring of the seas and the waves now this may literally mean uh that the seas the oceans of the world are just tumultuous but guys when you go to the old testament and daniel 7 again is just a key passage in all of this the turbulent tumultuous seas are a picture of the nations of the world and in daniel 7 when daniel sees one world empire after another rise on the scene, they proceed out of a troubled, turbulent sea. And Jesus says that's what the end will look like. Troubled, wind howling, waves roaring. That's what the world situation will look like. People will faint with fear and with foreboding. Have you guys ever known moments, panic attacks perhaps, or something weighs so heavily on your heart? You just are struck by terror. Well, it's going to be like that, but that's going to become common. Fear and foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Verse 27, Then they will see the Son of Man arriving in a cloud with power and great glory. So tough, tough, troubled, tumultuous, turbulent times. That's what's going on before the second coming. Now the phrase... That's when the Son of Man arrives in the clouds with power and great glory. Again, if you think of that imagery of the clouds, these aren't atmospheric clouds. Because clouds, of course, in the Old Testament, clouds were part of the expression of the glory of God on earth. So if you think back to Daniel 7 again, Daniel 7 is the text this series started on. Daniel 7, when the Son of Man... 
goes up to the Ancient of Days to receive the last and the eternal kingdom, he appears with the Ancient of Days on a cloud. Or when you see, I've got some, just these are brief examples, in the Exodus, the cloud, it's not, it's not an accident that the presence of God that leads Israel through the wilderness is a cloud during the day. The cloud represented God in His glory. It's a pillar of fire at night, which also represented God in His glory, but it's a cloud. 1 Kings 8, when Solomon's temple is completed, when the glory of God descends, it descends on this temple in a cloud. The cloud, the presence of God's glory, so fills the temple, the guys have to run out, they can't stay there. Later in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 1 is an overlooked passage in the Bible too. This is one of the most graphically grabbing passages in all the Bible. Ezekiel 1, when Ezekiel sees the presence of God coming down, it's a cloud. And it's a cloud filled with thunder and lightning and fire coming down from the north. Later in Ezekiel, when God is leaving the temple, it's the cloud that proceeds incrementally to leave the temple. God and God's glory are represented by this cloud. And last, Acts 1 when Jesus ascends from his followers on the Mount of Olives, goes up into heaven, they're standing there probably open-mouthed, gaping, a cloud receives Jesus, and he leaves earth's atmosphere in this cloud of glory. And of course, the angels say, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking up into the heavens? Jesus is going to return in just the same way as you saw him leave. Uh, later in Luke 21, uh, verse 34, uh, Jesus warns them again. This is important, by the way. Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, the cares of this life, and the day come upon you suddenly like a trap. It will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. You stay awake and pray that uh, pray so that you can stand before the Son of Man. Jesus here is talking about the entrance to the Millennial Kingdom. They're going to be tempted. The faithful are going to be tempted to cave and to capitulate. He says, don't. Stay spiritually alert. Pray so that you get there to the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom. Okay, so those are Luke's use of Son of Man related to the Second Coming. Briefly, God's going to keep His Word. I'll bet everybody in here has prayed the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, God's going to answer that prayer. And it's going to occur at the second coming and what follows the second coming. And God is going to keep the prophetic scriptures and there are numerous, numerous, numerous prophetic scriptures they've never been fulfilled that will be fulfilled in Jesus' presence on the earth ruling over this thousand-year reign when it's as if heaven has come down and met on earth. So, the second coming will institute God's kingdom on this earth. It will rule for a thousand years before the end of all things in this first heaven and earth are over. Then there's a new heaven and there's a new earth. And that's a topic for another day. So, this is what I want to do as we wind down. I'm just going to read. It's going to take eight to ten minutes, okay? And it's just a bunch of passages, one after another. The references are on your study sheet. The texts are not. This is it. There's redundancy in these. Several of these passages will cover some of the same ground. But in your mind's eye, this is what we should see. Jesus in heaven, given the kingdom, prepared to return, 
returns in glory to the earth, to the Mount of Olives, while Jerusalem's in trouble. The armies of the... Again, there's so much we're not covering today, right? But, but this gives some graphic interface for us. Comes down, puts down all evil, and then institutes his, etern- or, excuse me, his millennial kingdom. And then that kingdom is described by the last of the passages that we'll read, okay? So if you want to, you can close your eyes. This is when you can close your eyes. So if you ever want to do that while I'm teaching, this is the time to do it. But we want to see this in our mind's eyes. We want to have an expectation. God's wasted a lot of ink on the second coming if we don't read these passages. And if they don't move us to the sense of God's keeping His promises. He's faithful. I can count on Him. He said these things are going to happen. They're going to happen. And basically the end is Jesus wins and we're on His side. I hope you're on His side. If you've trusted Christ, you're on His side. If you haven't, This is a good day to repent and believe in Him. So, close your eyes or leave them open, but we'll ramble through here, starting with Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him, and to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. The beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. All the birds were gorged with their flesh. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a wide valley so that one half of the mount will move north and the other half south. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with Him. The Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints, to be marveled at among all who have believed. 
Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant, all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Then on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be King over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and His name one. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. 
They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. They shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's the future. Isn't that great? When we read these passages, our hearts are meant to be drawn to Christ. And guys, when we go away, the application is, John the Apostle, come Lord Jesus. Like the bridegroom, all she can think of is the groom. The wedding day is approaching. All I want to do is get married and start the honeymoon. And guys, this honeymoon goes on forever. It never ends. Jesus is going to return. He's going to put down all rebellion on this earth. He's going to set up his kingdom on the earth. Heaven in that day will reign over the earth. People will wear out the work of their hands. In that day to die at a hundred years, you'll be thought an infant because people will live to the end of that age. And after that, a topic for another day, we'll see the new heaven and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. But this is our future. This is the promise we have from Jesus, our King and Savior. Father, we do want our hearts to be drawn out to you. And whether it's fears or anxieties, Lord, the things that we're confronted with today, Lord, we are so easily led astray. Our hearts so easily take on burdens you haven't established for us. Father, as we contemplate our future, as we contemplate the fulfillment of your promises to your son and to his people, would you help us leave the things of earth behind? God, would you more fully transform us into your image? And would you help us to live, Lord, each day and each moment as John the Apostle did, where we say, Lord, where our eyes are on that coming time, that reunion with you, and we say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.